you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The text is also in the bulletin on the next page for you. <clears throat> so last week we heard John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. He announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, it's the public introduction of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. And this week we have a passage relating what happened when some folks heard that, when uh, who would be the first disciples heard John's testimony and uh, began to interact with Jesus. <clears throat> it's probably not the most interesting account in the Gospels to you, right? I mean, you go through the Gospels and you just kind of read, read past this part because it's just, you know, here's little brief interactions, simple record of their first encounters with Jesus, not big and sensational like, like some other encounters with Jesus that you find even in this same gospel, the big, crazy, miraculous stuff that happens. Uh, it's actually, <clears throat> uh, you know, it might not seem like it, it's actually quite an important account, um, but maybe for reasons that aren't readily apparent to us today. I think we need to learn <clears throat> to see and appreciate what it is that God wants us to see. Right? He thinks it's important for us to have this right here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry right here at the beginning of the gospel. He thinks it's important for us to have this, this simple introduction <clears throat> to him, the, the record of the disciples' first encounters. We need, to, we need to learn to see what it is God wants us to see and appreciate that, right? And that's been true of people in every time and place, not just us. We're not the only ones who just can't see immediately all the significance, all the value of um, of what we have recorded for us in the Gospels, can't immediately see the significance of Jesus himself. Right? We're not the only ones. It's true of everybody. <clears throat> it's a pretty simple lesson for us, but it's valuable that disciples are learners. We need to learn to see Jesus as God wants us to see Jesus, and we always need to learn. Disciples are learners. That word disciple means student. Right? Um, we're, we're students of Jesus, and we learn in relationship with Jesus. So Christians are not masters of a set of theological or philosophical ideas. Right? We haven't mastered a, a body of work or a set of ideas. That's not what we are fundamentally. We're not fundamentally experts of the moral life. We're not better than everybody else, Right? We're not virtuous, religious, moral people. We're not experts in that, <clears throat> not fundamentally. And Christians are not um, a whole lot of things. We're not, a, we're not commanders of nature. We're not lords of society. We're followers. Christians are, it's pretty simple. We're just followers. We're students of Jesus. We're people on a new trajectory, people for whom Jesus has had to place us on a new trajectory um, that requires reorientation and growth in his way. And this really only makes sense when you get to know who Jesus is, when you begin to see him and appreciate him, which only happens in relationship with him. It happens in relationship with him. So in our text, when people uh, see him, when they really see him, they follow him. That's super simple, isn't it? But we would do well to do the same. Uh, let's just talk about that this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll read the Scripture. 
Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would help us to have a true meeting with Jesus and get to know him and appreciate him for who he is and what he's done for us, that you would overcome any obstacles in our hearts and in our minds to that end so that in this uh, relational knowing of you through Jesus Christ, we would be changed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for what was about the tenth hour. That's four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, sorry for the computer and the glare and the glowing apple there. I just was too lazy to print my notes at the office again. So, we live in a uh, a pretty fast-paced society, right? There's no time to stop and smell the roses. Our attention has to be kept by things like intense action movies, right? Summer blockbusters, the one that make tons of money, that that can actually hold your attention, that can actually grip you for two hours, maybe, are those really intense, high-action thrill rides, right? That's what we need to keep our attention because of the society we live in. We just live in a fast-paced society. The Gospel of John isn't really starting off like one of those movies, is it? 
It's, uh, it's a little slow, maybe contemplative, but it's maybe more like the beginning of a mystery. Right? Uh, and here's a little detail that's easy to miss if you're in a hurry, if you have a hard time, like I do, uh, zooming in and paying close attention to what the text is saying, attention to the details, is that sight, people seeing, people having seen Jesus or Jesus saw them, it, uh, it happens 12 times in our passage. That's a lot. Right? It's just a little word, uh, which is easy to skim over it. There's a whole lot of looking taking place in this passage. It's not a superfluous detail. John's a good writer. He's a good editor. He knows what he wants to say and why he wants to say it. He includes what he does for good reason. <clears throat> in his prologue, where he kicks off the gospel, he, he talks about Jesus and he says, we have seen his glory. We've seen it. Right, that word again um, for sight. He's recording for us here in our passage what he and the other disciples have seen in their first encounter with Jesus. So this kind of is a clue for us about what's important to John, the way that we should think about relating to Jesus and what Christianity is. I mean, Christianity is a vision of Jesus Christ. It's the sight of him. It's seeing and understanding and knowing, right? Not just a superficial glancing, right? But a, an intense looking and an, a perceiving, a recognizing, really seeing and knowing him relationally. So Christianity is a vision of Jesus Christ. It says in, <clears throat> in our uh, passage at the beginning there that John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. He'd already begun to proclaim Jesus as the Lamb of God, but he, now he, it's the next day he looked. It says he looked intently, actually, is what that word kind of means. He looked intently, he looked closely at Jesus as he walked by and said, look. That's what the word behold means. Um, he said, look, it's the Lamb of God. He's looking, he's commanding other people to look, and the two disciples heard him say this, they listened, and they did what he said. They, they followed Jesus so that they could check him out, right? Uh, John's ministry worked. It worked. He's not upset, as we'll discover later in John's gospel, he's not upset to lose disciples to Jesus when they uh, leave his school and go to the school of Jesus. He's not upset about that. That's what his life is about. His ministry worked when they left. And it's Andrew. These two fellows are Andrew and probably John. Probably John, the, the evangelist, the gospel writer, the apostle John. He doesn't like to name himself. In fact, here he barely has called attention to himself at all, but <clears throat> it probably is Andrew and John who listened to John the Baptist's command to look. Just look. There he is. All right, look at Jesus. Now, <clears throat> looking at Jesus doesn't just mean kind of check him out. Doesn't mean scrutinize him or uh, make a judgment about him as if you stood over him and you're able to assess according to your own judgment, who Jesus is, who he should be, whether he stacks up you know, against your expectations of him. It doesn't mean make a judgment about him um, in that way. <clears throat> it actually means truly being open to what you find in him. Right. Look, there he is, and you need to deal with that. 
You need to be truly open to what you find when you see Jesus Christ. And the encounter usually, here and other places in the Scriptures, usually includes needing to answer questions about yourself, right? You don't just go check Jesus out. When you come to Jesus, He asks you questions, right? Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. It's a good basic uh, translation provided in the text there um, because rabbi is a Hebrew word and the text is written in Greek. So John's writing for his Greek readers. He interprets several of uh, the Hebrew words that happen in these conversations. So rabbi means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. So, this is the birth of the church right here, right? Or at least the conception of it. This is the, the beginning of the beginnings of the church of Jesus Christ. There's hardly a more profound event. Think of the historical and, and even cosmic ramifications of Andrew and John having this first interaction with Jesus, becoming his first disciples. And it all starts with a couple of curious guys getting probably a little bit uncomfortable when Jesus takes notice of them. That's that's what happens here, right? Maybe they thought they could keep a distance. They were told to look. They followed him. Maybe they could keep a distance and just kind of watch what he did and hear what he said without much personal investment. But, um, But Jesus turns around and sees them and engages with them, right? So... It's kind of like those movies where there's a good guy driving and he knows he's got a tail, right? He knows somebody's following him and instead of trying to outrun him, he hits the brakes, pulls over the car, gets out of the car, goes back and asks, what are you looking for? What do you need? Right? Uh, Sir, they say, we we just want to know where you're staying. (laughs) Where are you staying? Oh man, now we sound like stalkers. Okay, so they're awkward. Right? They don't have a good answer to his question. They're kind of put on the spot. They, they feel uncomfortable about it. Right? That's normal. That's normal with Jesus. You think you're going to go check him out, and he starts to probe and ask you questions about yourself that are uncomfortable. Awkwardness aside, Jesus wants them to be with him. Right? He wants them. Come, come and see, he says. Come and you will see. He uses the same words <clears throat> uh, that, that later uh, Philip uses with Nathaniel. You want to know more about me, you come and see. You don't have to follow me from a distance. You can come with me. You can come spend time with me and get to know me. Not come and I'm going I'm to put you to work. I've got a good job for you. Not, hey, you know what? You're doing life wrong. Let me teach you how to do it right. It's come and see. Come and see. um, Frederick Bruner says, uh, he's a commentator on this, he says, it seems that the evangelist is suggesting that just getting together with Jesus and talking with him normally is enough to make a person his committed disciple. And then he points out that Jesus' evangelism is very human and courteous. 
I mean, he's not laying a bunch of theories and theology and apologetics on these guys. He's saying, come and spend time with me. All right, come and see. Truly seeing Jesus doesn't mean that you remotely analyze him. <clears throat> In fact, it means opening yourself up to his searching sight, to his knowing you. Right? Uh, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Again, that uh, interpretation or translation from Hebrew to Greek. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked intently at him, at Simon, and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter, another one of those translations. So these are not the most helpful translations to us because they're just the... the, the Interpreters, the, the translators of the ESV are still doing what John was doing for his Greek audience. He's just translating Hebrew words into Greek, which may not help you because you don't know what the word Christ means, right? You don't know what the word Peter means. He should have translated these things, you know, we have found the Messiah, which means the anointed one, right? He's the anointed one. And when Jesus is talking to Simon, he says, you shall be called Kephas, which means rocky, Right? Your name's going to be Rocky. We all have a picture of what that means. Right? Um, you're going to be solid. That's what he's saying. So, um, but it's interesting that it says he looked at him. Right? One of those things that's really easy for us to overlook. Jesus looked, not just a normal kind of word for looking. He looked intently. He looked into him is what that means. So, <clears throat> Paul Miller, this is a quote that's on the uh, front page of the bulletin. He says, as I studied how Jesus loved, I was surprised by the number of times that Jesus looks at people. Love begins with looking. And Paul Miller has a great book on, uh, it's called Love Walked Among Us, Learning to Love Like Jesus. And he points out the fact that, you know, we're, we're actually not willing to look at people, especially if we kind of don't want to have much to do with them, like a, a homeless person begging for money, you avert your eyes, because if you look, you're drawn in. And we know that. And we don't think about it, we just don't look. Right? If you're looking at another person, you're hooked, and there's love, and you're going to lose yourself to some degree, right? Uh, so, Jesus looks a lot, like 40 times in the Gospels, he looks at people, and he looks intently at people. So he's not shying away from relationship. He looks at Simon, and he renames him. Rocky, Peter. Peter's a great name for him. We'll call him Peter, right? But really what he's saying is, Rocky, your name is going to be, you're the, you're the solid guy, right? Um, he renamed him... <clears throat> uh, so immediately, Simon, on beginning what he thought was his investigation of Jesus, I'm going to go see whether this guy's the Messiah or not. Uh, immediately on that, Jesus takes control of Simon's life, and he claims lordship over Simon. That's, that's what happens there. You meet a guy, and you rename him. It's not just a friendly kind of a nickname. It's a renaming. And that seems a little presumptuous, probably, to a lot of us. But it doesn't just come out of the blue. This actually happens quite a bit in the scriptures. We need to make that connection in our minds. Think back to the Old Testament. It was common for God to rename people. It's common for God to rename people. 
like Abram, he renamed Abraham, and Jacob, he renamed Israel, right? So God exercises his right over people to tell them who they are. He exercises his right in their lives to rename them. It's never arbitrary. It's never random. It's always with a purpose, and it's a good purpose, right? Um, and it's, it's actually usually humorous. There's usually a laugh that takes place when God renames people. Abraham and Sarah thought it was a joke. She actually laughed at the idea of him becoming a father of multitude of nations. That's what Abraham means, right? God says, you're going to be called Abraham because you're going to be a father of the multitude of nations. Somebody who's, you know, he and his wife were way past the age of having kids and they didn't have any. It's kind of a joke, right? Kind of humorous. Same way, Simon, to be called Peter, rocky, solid. It's a bit comical if you know his story. He, he was a bit too impressed with himself at first, but saw quickly enough the fickleness of his own heart. He wasn't nearly as steadfast and loyal as he claimed to be or that he imagined himself to be. Right? He would have to grow into that name. Simon would have to grow into the name Peter, Rocky, solid, uh, the name that the, that the Lord gave him. Jesus comes to him and says, Simon, you think you're a big deal? You have no idea what, it take, what it'll take for you to become solid, but I can work with you. I can do it. You will be Peter. And that's exactly the kind of people that God always works with, people who are not impressive in themselves, people who, if you called them good or righteous, or faithful, would be laughable, right? It's kind of a joke, but he takes, he takes weak people like Simon, and he looks intently at them. He knows what they're like. He knows what's inside people. He knows what Simon is like. He's not ignoring that, but knowing full well who he is in himself, he calls him something new by the creative power of his word. That's what God does, does with us all the time. He first calls Simon a stalwart, steadfast, something like a foundation. He first imputes to him something that is not intrinsic to him. He declares it and imputes it and considers it and reckons it to Simon. And then he cultivates those traits in him in, in his own ways, in his own timing. Childless Abraham really has become the father of a multitude of nations. Faithless Peter really has become a model for our faith in Jesus. Maybe not in ways we would have expected, but Jesus surprises us by being able to to work with people like these guys and work with people like us. Jesus surprises us by knowing what we're like. He sees into us and yet being able to work with us and change us. When you come to investigate Jesus, when you come looking for him, first you encounter him as one who knows you. He really knows you. He's seen you 
all the way down. That's what you encounter first, is the one who knows you and as one who speaks a word over you that is the final word. It's the true determiner of your identity, whether it is currently descriptive of you or not. And the word that he speaks over your life is that you're beloved by God. The word that he speaks over your life is that you are righteous and clean and pure and holy in God's sight. That's the word, the final word that he speaks over you, even though that's not so descriptive of you in and of yourself. That's what he calls you, and that's what he makes you. And this is his first and last word about your identity, and there's power in that declaration. His word is true because he's the Lord. And I'll bet you didn't expect that when you went looking for Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me, follow me. Pretty earthy phrase, right? Pretty simple. Come on. He took the initiative to invite Philip to a pretty simple arrangement. Come with me. You spend time with me. You learn from me, and you do what I do. He doesn't expect perfection on your part. He does not demand that you score well on your entrance entrance exams before entering his school. You're invited to come to his school and learn. There's no entrance exam, really. He expects you to follow him. Just follow him. Starting wherever you are, just being willing to learn and grow in relationship with him, And this is something that should actually characterize the entire life of a Christian, not just the beginning, right? There's never a time when you graduate from Jesus' school. There's never a time when you graduate from being a disciple, a learner. There's never a time when you can stand on your own two feet in the world, venturing out on your own apart from your teacher. Uh, The Christian life is one of following, the whole thing, one of following And the more closely you stick to Jesus, the better. Uh, Henry Nouwen uh, has a book called In the Name of Jesus that we've been reading, uh, some of us, together. It's a really great book. I recommend it highly to you. Uh, He says in his book, it's about uh, Christian leadership, but it really is relevant to all of us. Um, The world says, when you were young, you were dependent, and you could not go where you wanted But when you grow old, you'll be able to make your own decisions, go your own way, and control your own destiny. But Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go, to unknown, undesirable, and painful places. So when Jesus invites his people to come and see, to follow him, that is not an invitation to uh, kind of the upward mobility that we're used to in the world, right? It's not an invitation to the easy, comfortable life that we prefer. It's an invitation to downward mobility. It's an invitation to the cross, ultimately. Jesus says, follow me, and that's what should characterize you. And the more mature you are, the better you get at following Jesus, sticking close to him and doing what he does. That means come and see his cross, Come and see his suffering love. Come and see it and follow him to your own cross. 
your own death to self, your own sacrifice for the sake of other people, your own suffering love. Philip and others, uh, Philip's the one Jesus is calling here to that relationship. Philip and others among Jesus' first disciples actually went to their own literal crosses and they actually died as they followed Jesus. That's not a place any of us would choose to go of our own will. But discovering and following Jesus means putting his will above ours, all our judgments being put aside. So now, Philip was from Bethsaida. That's where uh, Andrew and Peter were from. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We've found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. We have found, he says, we have found, this is plural, right? This is not just him. It's not just Philip. Philip's not the only one with the truth here. He's saying, we have found him. There's sort of this chain reaction of people now who have uh, gathered to Jesus, that he's gathered to himself, that have started to follow him together. It's not just one guy. It's not just individuals. It's a group. And they're sticking with Jesus together now. Look, Philip barely knows Jesus. He barely knows him. That's somewhat clear from the way that he talks about him. His theology isn't that great. If he were being really precise, he would say he's the adopted son of Joseph, right? His theology is not perfect yet. He's just starting out here in his relationship with Jesus, but he's taken with the person of Jesus, and he's excited to learn more about him with others. He wants to see others brought in to see Jesus and have a relationship with him so we could do this together. Let's find out more about him together, right? Uh, Nathaniel I think the other Gospels uh, call him Bartholomew. He's apparently this, uh, which Bartholomew just means the son of Ptolemaeus. So Nathaniel is probably his first name, and Bartholomew is how people know him in relationship to his father. But uh, apparently he's kind of an academic guy, probably concerned with the Scriptures, which is how Philip starts to engage with him. Look, that guy in the Scriptures, the Old Testament, (laughs) Um, the one that they were talking about, we found him. We've got him. This is him. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, he's got, it's a bit of a scathing, condemning, like prejudiced, uh, rhetorical question. He's not, he's probably not really asking the question, right? Um, This is kind of dismissive. You get that sense? He's a bit predisposed against the idea of Jesus being anybody important. He's predisposed. Jesus probably is not that important. Hear a little bit about him. Probably not that big of a deal. He can't imagine there's much to this Jesus until he has an encounter with him. Um, But personally, I mean, I think this reminds me of uh, myself becoming a Christian. I was an atheist. I went to college as an atheist. And then I was surrounded by Christians because I went to a Christian school. I went to George Fox. I thought I knew what Christianity was. I argued a lot with my friends, presuming that I knew that Jesus was not a big deal. Presuming that I knew he's not very important. He's nobody important, right? I presumed that. I insisted upon it. I argued. I was pretty much a jerk about it with a lot of uh, good, good people who were willing to be in relationship with me. 
but meeting Jesus, actually meeting him, uh, that was a new thing that did not fit my categories. I presumed that I knew who he was, and I presumed, therefore, I could dismiss him. But, um, but actually meeting him was a new thing, and I discovered that I previously had not been open to him before. Not actually knowing him, who he really is, on his own terms. Not coming to know him relationally, but he made his way into my life anyway. And maybe that's something uh, similar to, to some of your stories or familiar to you from your life or friends that you've got that you need to talk with Jesus about. But uh, I think that's what's happening with Nathaniel here. He's kind of originally just dismissive of Jesus. He thinks he's got this guy figured out based on this little tiny bit of information. And so he could just, whatever, write him off. Nobody important that I need to turn my attention to. Philip doesn't argue with Nathaniel. Philip doesn't get defensive. He doesn't drop a bunch of apologetics on him and try to reason with him from the scriptures. Probably not really able to do that yet at this point. He's not trying to prove anything. Philip's not trying to prove the existence of God or, or Jesus and who he is. He just invites him. Right? It, it, this reminds me of this song, uh, the, the U2 song that Bono sings, uh, Stop Helping God Across the Street Like a Little Old Lady. Stop helping God across the street like a as if, as if you were the one that was going to convert people by giving them all the information they ever needed to prove decisively that Jesus is who he says he is. You need to do what Philip does and just say, come and see. You're writing him off. You don't think he could be anybody important. Why don't you come and see? Let's go see together. Let's pursue your question together. Right? So, <clears throat> again, Frederick Bruner says, um, this is kind of a good application for us, I think. That this is the, the way that people are being introduced to Jesus. Have a Christocentric preacher, and he's talking about John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist kind of kicked off this whole thing and got everybody thinking along these lines. Have a Christocentric preacher and find and invite family and friends to come to church, come to the group where we say, we've found him. We found the Messiah. And check out the matter for its reality. Don't just engage in arguments from the outside. Come, on, come inside and see. And come and meet Jesus. Come and see. So, um, Bruner also points out the fact, so here we've got examples of all these things in this passage. You've got preacher evangelism, which is bring somebody to church and let me do it, um, with John the Baptist. You've got family evangelism, Andrew first going after his own brother, Simon. That's kind of natural. You just, you're in relationships with people. You tell them what you're excited about. That's natural. And then you've got friendship evangelism here with Philip and Nathaniel. So Nathaniel was skeptical. He was skeptical, but he came, right? He was willing to reassess his preconceived notions, his expectations about what the Messiah would be like. He was skeptical, but honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice, F.F. Bruce says, one of the commentators on this passage. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. Maybe God can work with our prejudice. Maybe God can work with our disbelief. Maybe God can work with our incredulity. I think he can work if you come and see him. Um, 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, look, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This is a guileless guy who just speaks his mind. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. So Jesus knew Nathanael, which he seems a little bit grumpy about at first. How do you know me? And D.A. Carson says this about uh, Jesus' comment on Nathanael about him being an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael may have been blunt in his criticism of Nazareth, which apparently Jesus heard, even though it was not done in his immediate presence. His criticism of Nazareth may have been blunt, but he was without duplicitous motives, willing to examine for himself the claims being made about Jesus. So there's no deceit in him. He may be a jerk, but at least he's honest. I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying. With Nathaniel, hey, at least what you see is what you get. That's good. That's a compliment. That's fine, right? Um, and perhaps when he's saying, I saw you before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree, perhaps uh, Nathaniel had been praying there privately under a fig tree, uh, and the only one who would have seen him would have been God. So that realization, it floors Nathaniel, and he rather dramatically converts and begins to see Jesus and acknowledge him for who he really is. So I think what we can take away from this is that truly seeing Jesus means uh, the surprising realization that he saw you first. Seeing Jesus means you, you're probably surprised, and it's startling. It's a realization that he saw you first. Um, this maybe seems troubling to some of us, but actually it's good news. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you get to, to know God, the happier you are at the profound thought that he knew you before you knew him. He knew you, the scripture says, in your mother's womb when he was forming you and knitting you together. He knew you, the scripture says, before the foundations of the world. So a long time before you knew him, he saw you and he knew you. And it's encouraging to us because his knowing is a loving knowing. It is a loving knowing. Knowing you, he came into the world for you. Knowing you, he went to the cross for you. So Jesus answered Nathanael, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Sorry, we don't have time to talk about what that means. The Son of Man, uh, very briefly, is Jesus. It's his first significant words about himself. It's his favorite self-designation. It's the title that he uses for himself most frequently. There's something mysterious about it. Can't unpack everything about it, but it, it hints at... Um, Actually, both his divinity and his humanity together. That's what the Son of Man hints at. It's the true divinity of God revealed through the humanity of Jesus. 
And he says, you're going to see the Son of Man, and you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is a reference to what Sarah read from our uh, Old Testament reading, Genesis 28. Someone who comes to Jesus, as Jesus is saying here now, Nathaniel, you've come to me, and you think you've seen something important already. You ain't seen nothing yet. This is what you're going to see. You're going to see that I'm the meeting place between God and men. I'm Jacob's ladder, the place where Jacob had the vision, where God is, usually we think of him as inaccessible in the heavens, and there's a ladder, and there's angels going back and forth, messengers of God, the ministers of God, communicating from, from heaven to earth and back and forth, right? The real communing, communing spot, the place where God dwells with his people, that's me, and you're going to see that, Jesus says. I'm the meeting place between heaven and earth. I'm Jacob's ladder. And that's, that's going to be the big deal when you see that. Again, Frederick Bruner says that the gospel reports a remarkable intimacy between father and son, between the father and the son, Jesus Christ. This intimacy, it's not expressed in angels. We don't see the angels going back and forth, up and down. Jesus, right? That's a picture, right? It's a picture for for this relationship between the Father and the Son, that's the main meaning, this is Brunner, Brunner's language, the main meaning of Jesus' pictorial image now, in this Father-Son relation as it is lived out in a few dozen scenes, heaven and earth will seem to be in living contact, will seem almost to be joined. Jesus' phrase means, in me, disciples, you will find heaven and earth connected. I'm your link with heaven. So as Jacob was going on and uh, after he woke from his dream, after he woke from his vision about, this is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the gate of heaven. That's what he's saying. And conversation with him is sufficient to convince you of that. It's sufficient to make committed disciples. Just normal conversation with Jesus is enough to impress you with that. Now, uh, just to close up, let's actually take our cue from uh, <clears throat> Albert Einstein. He's a fair observer of things, um, and in this case, he's basically just not overlooking the obvious. He says, I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful they are. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus, his personality, pulsates in every word. So pick up your Gospels and get to know Him. Come and see Him. Follow Him. Open yourself to Him. Live in relationship with Him. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank You for sending Your Son into the world. We thank You that we get to know You through Him. Thank You that uh, we, we come to know You as a good God, someone who knows us inside and out yet has not rejected us in fact, you've given yourself to us for a relationship with you that will last forever, and we pray that you would help us to believe this at a deeper level in our lives, help us to, to come and see Jesus for who he really is, to open up our lives to him in every way as he questions us and pursues us and takes the initiative with us, as he sees and knows us and helps us to even come to know ourselves a little bit better in light of uh, his vision of us. We pray that you would help us 
to be in this relationship with Jesus because that's where life really is. It's where life takes place. That's where true love is found and the resources for us to be able to love like Jesus loves. It comes from uh, knowing you through your spirit and relating to you in the name of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.